11. Elcom that court as a princess, that she had a son born in England, and that she herself died there in 1617. We know also that her son, Thomas Rolfe, settled in Virginia, and that through him a number of Virginians traced descent from Pocahontas. Mr. Andrews points out that in 1915 one of these descendants became the wife of the President of the United States. But we know also that John Smith, brave and daring though he was, was not above twisting and embroidering a tale to his own glorification. While, therefore, it is too much to affirm that his rescue story is false, it is well to remember that Pocahontas was but twelve years old when the rescue was said to have occurred, and that Smith waited until after she had become famous, and had died, to promulgate his romantic story. Immediately to the north of Capitol Square stands the City Hall, an ugly building in the cellar of which is the police court presided over by the celebrated and highly entertaining Judge Crutchfield, otherwise known as, One John, and, the Kitty, of whom more presently, a few blocks beyond the city hall, in the old mansion at the corner of East Clay and Twelfth Streets, which was the, White House of the Confederacy, the official residence of Jefferson Davis during the war, is the Confederate Museum one of the most fascinating museums I ever visited. Not the least part of the charm of this museum is the fact that it is not of great size, and that one may consequently visit it without fatigue, but the chief fascination of the place is the dramatic personalness of its exhibits. To me there is always something peculiarly engaging about intimate relics of historic figures, and it is of such relics that the greater part of the collection of the Confederate Museum consists, in one showcase, for example, are the saddle and bridle of General Lee, and the uniform he wore when he surrendered. The effects of General Joseph E. Johnston are shown in another case, and in still another those of the picturesque J.B. Stewart, who, as here one may see, loved the little touch of individuality and dash which came of wearing a feather in a campaign hat. So also one learns something of Stonewall Jackson when one sees in the cabinet, along with his old blue hat and other possessions, the gold spurs which were given to him by the ladies of Baltimore, beside the steel spurs that he wore. All Jackson's personal effects were very simple. One of the most striking relics in the museum is the Great Seal of the Confederacy, which was only returned to Richmond within the last few years. After having been lost track of for nearly half a century a strange chapter in the annals of the Civil War, records in the Library of Congress, including the Confederate State Papers purchased by the United States Government in 1872, of William J. Bronwell, formerly a clerk in the Confederate State Department brought to a light, a few years ago, the fact that the seal was in the possession of Rear Admiral Thomas O. Selfridge, USN retired, at the time of the evacuation of Richmond, Bronwell carried off a number of the Confederate state papers, and Mrs. Bronwell took charge of the seal, transporting it through the lines in her bustle, when later, through Colonel John T. Pickett, Bronwell sold the papers to the government, Rear Admiral Selfridge then a captain was the officer assigned to go to Hamilton, Ontario to inventory and receive them. It is said that Pickett gave the seal to Selfridge at about this time. First, however, having a duplicate made, this duplicate, or a copy of it, was later offered for sale as the original, but was found to be spurious. One examination of the Pickett papers by Galar Hunt, of the Library of Congress, finally traced the original seal to a rear Admiral Selfridge. An effort was made to buy it back. In 1912 three Richmond gentlemen, Masros, Epcon Hunton, Jr. William H. White and Thomas P. Bryan, purchased the seal of the Admiral for $3,000, subject to proof of its authenticity. Mr. St. George Bryan and Mr. William Gray, 
of Richmond, then took the seal to a London, where the makers are still well-known engravers. Here, by means of hallmarks, the identification was made complete, no less appealing than the relics of the deceased government and great generals who are gone, are some of the humbler items connected with the deaths of privates in the ranks of North and South alike. One of the most pathetic was a small daguerreotype of a beautiful young girl, on a card, beside the picture, is the story of it, so far as that story is ever likely to be known, picture found on the dead body of an unidentified federal soldier, presented by C.C. Calvert, Upperville, VA, we had always hoped, said Miss Susan B. Harrison, house regent of the museum, that someday someone would come in and recognize this little picture and that it would find its way back to those who ought to have it, and who might by this means at last discover what became of the soldier who was dear to them. An even more tragic souvenir is a letter addressed to A.V. Montgomery, Camden, Madison County, Mississippi, in which a mortally wounded soldier of Confederacy bids a last goodbye to his father. The letter was originally enclosed with one from Lieutenant Ethelbert Fairfax, CSA informing the father that his son passed away soon after he had written. The text pitiful and heroic as it island can give but the faintest idea of the original, with its feeble, laborious writing, and the dark brown spots dappling the three sheets of paper where blood from the boy's mangled shoulder dripped upon them while he wrote, Spotsylvania County, VA, May 10, 1864, Dear Father, this is my last letter to you, I went into battle this evening as courier for Jinheth. I have been struck by a piece of shell and my right shoulder is horribly mangled and I know death is inevitable. I am very weak but I write to you because I know you would be delighted to read a word from your dying son. I know death is near, that I will die far from home and friends of my early youth. But I have friends here, too, who are kind to me. My friend Fairfax will write you at my request and give you the particulars of my death. My grave will be marked so that you may visit it if you desire to do so but it is octillonary with you whether you let my remains rest here or in Mississippi. I would like to rest in the graveyard with my dear mother and brothers, but it is a matter of minor importance. Let us all try to reunite in heaven. I pray my God to forgive my sins and I feel that his promises are true, that he will forgive me and save me. Give my love to all my friends. My strength fails me. My horse and my equipments will be left for you. Again a long farewell to you. May we meet in heaven. Your dying son, J.R. Montgomery, Chapter XXII Random Richmond Notes Richmond may again be likened to Boston as a literary center. In an article published some years ago in Book News, Alice M. Tyler refers to Colonel William Bard, who founded Richmond in 1733, as the sprightliest and most genial Native American writer before Franklin. In the time of Chief Justice Marshall, Richmond had a considerable group of novelists, historians and essayists. But the great literary name connected with the place is that of Edgar Allan Poe, who spent much of his boyhood in the city and later edited the Southern Literary Messenger. Matthew Fontmore, the great scientist, mentioned in an earlier chapter, was, at another time, editor of the same periodical, as was also John Reuben Thompson, poet of the Confederacy, who wrote, among other poems, Music in Camp, and who translated Gustave Nadog's familiar poem, Carcassonne. Thomas Nelson Page made his home in Richmond for 30 years, Emily Rives was born there and still maintains her residence in Albemarle County, Virginia, while among other writers of the present time connected with the city either by birth or long association are, Henry Sidner Harrison, Mary Johnston, Ellen Glasgow, Marion Harland, Kate Langley Bosher, 
James Branch Cable, Edward Petley, Dramatist, J.H. Whitney, Biographer of Poe, and Colonel W. Gordon McCabe, Soldier, Historian, Essayist, and Local Character A Gentleman Upon Whose Shoulders Such Imported Expressions As Literature, Bon Vivert, and Raconteur Alight As Naturally As Doves On Friendly Shoulders. Colonel McCabe is a link between present-day Richmond and the traditions and associations of England. He was the friend of Lord Roberts. He introduced Lord Tennyson to Bulldurham Tobacco, and, as is fitting under the circumstances, he speaks and writes of a hotel as an hotel. Henry Sidner Harrison did his first writing as book reviewer on the Richmond Times-Dispatch, of which paper he later became paragrapher and daily poet, and still later editor-in-chief. It is commonly reported in Richmond that the characters in his novel, Cued, the scenes of which are laid in Richmond, were drawn from life. I asked Mr. Harrison about this. When the book appeared, he said, I was much embarrassed by the disposition of Richmond people human and natural. I suppose, when you know the author to identify all the imaginary persons with various local characters, some characteristics of the political boss in my story were in a degree suggested by a local celebrity, Stuart Bryan is indicated, in passing, as Stuart Board, and the bare bones of a historic case, altered at will, were employed in another connection. But I think I am stating the literal truth when I say that no figure in the book is borrowed from life. The recent residential development in Richmond has been to the west of the city in the neighborhood of Monument Avenue, a fine double drive, with a parked center, lined with substantial new homes, and having at intervals monuments to southern heroes, Lee, Davis, and J.E.B. Stewart. The parks are on the outskirts of the city and, as in most other cities, it is in these outlying regions that new homes are springing up. Thanks in no small degree to the automobile, the Country Club of Virginia is out to the west of the town, in what is known as West Hampton, and is one of the most charming clubs of its kind in the South or, indeed, in the country. Richmond has one of the most beautiful and several of the most curious cemeteries I have ever seen. Hollywood Cemetery stands upon rolling bluffs overlooking the James, and under its majestic trees are the tombs of many famous men, including James Monroe, John Tyler. Jefferson Davis and Fitz Hooley, an inscription on the Davis Monument, which was erected by the widow and daughter of the President of the Confederacy, describes him as an American soldier and defender of the Constitution. At the back of the pedestal is another inscription, President of the Confederate States of America 1861-1865, faithful to all trusts, a martyr to principle. He lived and died the most consistent of American soldiers and statesmen. It occasionally happens that Instead of having monuments because in life they were famous, men are made famous after death, by the inscriptions placed upon their tombstones, such as the case with James E. Valentine, a locomotive engineer killed in a collision many years ago. The Valentine Monument in Hollywood Cemetery is almost as well known as the monuments erected in memory of the great. The reason for this being embodied in the following verse adorning the stone, until the brakes are turned on time, life's throttle valve shut down. He wakes to pilot in the crew that wear the martyr's crown. On schedule time on upper grade along the homeward section. He lands his train at God's roundhouse the morn of resurrection. His time all full. No wages docked. His name on God's payroll. And transportation through to heaven. A free pass for his soul. In the burial ground of Old Street John's Church the building in which Patrick Henry delivered his Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death oration are a number of old gravestones bearing strange inscriptions which appeal to the imagination, and also, alas, 
elicits sad thoughts concerning those who wrote the old-time gravestone doggerel. The custodian of the church is glad to indicate the interesting stones, but is much more taken up with his own gift of oratory, as displayed when, on getting visitors inside the church, he takes his place on the spot where Patrick Henry stood, and delivers the famous oration. Having done this to us or perhaps it would seem more generous to say for us the caretaker told us that many persons who had heard him had declared that Patrick Henry himself would have had a hard time doing it better, but when he threatened, for contrast, to deliver the oration as a last gifted elocutionist might speak it, my companion, in whom I had already observed signs of restlessness, interrupted with the statement that we were late for an engagement, and fled from the place, followed by me in certain parts of the city, often at a considerable distance from the warehouse and factory sections, one may occasionally catch upon the breeze the faint, spicy fragrance of tobacco, and should one trace these pleasant scents to their sources, one would come to a region of factories in which rich brown leaves are transformed into pipe tobacco, plug tobacco, or cigarettes, in the simpler processes of this work, negro men and women are employed, and these with their natural picturesqueness of pose and costume, and their singing, in the setting of an old shadowy loft, make a tobacco factory a fascinating place, in one loft you will see negro men and boys handling the tobacco leaves with pitchforks, much as farm hands handle hay, in another, negro women squatting upon boxes, stemming the leaves, or pulling up ends, their black faces blending mysteriously with the dark shadows of beams and rafters, here the air is laden not only with the sweet tobacco smell, mixed with a faint scent of licorice and of fruit, but is freighted also with a fine brown dust which is revealed where bars of sunlight strike in through the windows, and which seems, as it shifts and sparkles, to be a visible expression of the smell. In the busy season, street niggers are generally used for stemming, which island perhaps, the leading part of the tobacco industry in Richmond, and these street niggers, a wild yet childlike lot, who lead a hand-to-mouth existence all year round, bring to the tobacco trade a wealth of semi-barbaric color. To give us an idea of the character of a Richmond street nigger, the gentleman who took my companion and me through the factory told us of having wanted a piece of light work done, and having asked one of these negroes, want to earn a quarter? To which the latter replied without moving from his comfortable place beside a sun-baked brick wall, Mumber boss, Dagadiquata. The singing of the negroes is a great feature of the stemming department in a tobacco factory. Some of the singers become locally famous, also, I was told by the superintendent, they become independent, and for that reason have frequently to be dismissed. The wonderful part of the singing, aside from the fascinating harmonies made by the sweet and trained Negro voices, is the utter lack of prearrangement that there is about it. Now there will be silence in the loft, then there will come a strange, half-savage cry from some dark corner, musical, yet seemingly meaningless. Soon a faint humming will begin, and will be taken up by men and women all over the loft, the humming will swell into a chant to which the workers rock as their black hands travel swiftly among the brown leaves, then, presently, it will die away, and there will be silence until they are again moved to song, from shadowy room to shadowy room, past great dark bins filled with the leaves, past big black steaming vets, oozing sweet-smelling substances, past moist fragrant barrels, always among the almost spectral forms of negroes, treading out leaves with their feet, working over great wicker baskets stained to tobacco color, piling up wooden frames, 
or operating the powerful hydraulic presses which convert the soft tobacco into plugs of concrete hardness so one goes on through the factory. The browns and blacks of these interiors are the browns and blacks of etchings, the color of the leaves, the old dark timbers, the black faces and hands, and the ragged clothing, combined with the humming of negro voices, the tobacco fragrance, and the golden dust upon the air, make an indescribably complete harmony of shade, sound, and scent. The department in which the pipe tobacco is packed in tins is a very different sort of place, here white labor is employed, a great many girls seated side by side at benches working with great digital dexterity, measuring out the tobacco, folding wax paper cartons, filling them, and slipping them into the narrow tins, all at a rate of speed so great as to defy the sight, giving a sense of fingers flickering above the bench with a strange, almost supernatural sureness like the fingers of a magician who makes things disappear before your eyes, or like the pictures in which post-impressionist and cubist painters attempt to express motion. May I speak to one of them? I asked the superintendent. Sure, said he. I went up to a young woman who was working, if anything, more rapidly than the other girls at the same bench. Can you think, while you are doing this? I asked. Yes, she replied, without looking up, while her fingers flashed on ceaselessly. About other things, certainly. How many cans do you fill in a day? About 34 to 3500 on the average. May I ask your name? She gave it. I took up one of the small identification slips which she put into each package, and wrote her name upon the back of it. The number on the slip for the purpose of identifying the girl who packed the tin was 220. Let the reader, therefore, be informed that if he smokes Edgeworth Ready Rubbed, and finds in a tin a slip bearing that number, he has been served by no less a person than Miss Katie Wise, of the Astonishingly Speedy Fingers. Chapter XXIIIJEDGACRUDCHFILDS Code Dar is a POW's full razzle twixt a good and the bad, and the bad's got to all under hold, and one the wuss come, she come I on clad, and you had her hold your breath for to jolt. Uncle Remus, my companion and I had not traveled far into the south before we discovered that our comfort was likely to be considerably enhanced if in hotels, we singled out an intelligent bellboy and, as far as possible, let this one boy serve us. Our mainstay in the Jefferson Hotel was Charles Jackson, number 144, or, when Charles was off, his side partner, whom we knew as Bob, having one day noticed a Negro in convict stripes, but without a guard, raking up leaves in Capitol Square. I asked Charles about the matter. Do they let the convicts go around and guarded? I inquired. Yes, some of them can, said he, those is trustees, this talk of trustees led to other things and finally to a strong recommendation, by Charles, of the Richmond Police Court, as a place of entertainment, is it interesting, I asked, interesting, yes, sure, Judge Crutchfield he certainly is, he done charge me $26.40, my brother, he got in fight down street, he, some niggers set on him, I went to heap him and piss him and got me. He say I was resistant piss. I ain't resisted no piss. Moonbersha. Not me. But Judge Crutchfield. You can't tell him nothing. Tain't no use to have a lawyer. Newfer. Judge Crutchfield don't want no lawyers in his coat. Like as not he chot you mofo having lawyer. Then you got a lawyer. Two. Friend mine named Billy. One night Billy he wake up and he someone come pushing in his house. He holla. Who far? Not a nigger he could pushin' on him. He say, the scourge. Billy. He say, get on out he. Nigger. 
ain't no gosh live he, ah nigga, he say, don't make no difference gosh live he o not, he sure common writin', ain't nobody he can stop old gosh, he eat em alive, gosh do, he the boss of Jackson Ward, that is say yo praise, nigga, so yo time has come, Billy he don't want yet nobody, but this he gosh he drunk, and Billy have to hit him, well, sha, what you think this gosh done, he go have Billy rested, yes, sure, but you can't tell Judge Crutchfield nothing, next moment in peace code he say to Billy, I fine you $25, so hit him this old grade-aid man, yes, sure, that ass away Judge Crutchfield Island can't tell him nothing, he jay set up there on the bench, and he chaw tobacco, and he hid the cases, and he spent, and every time he spent he spent a fine, yes, sure, he spent like these, he fessy, five dollars, PFSD, ten dollars, PFSD, fifteen dollars, just how he feel, he certainly is some judge, that man, encouraged by this account of police court justice as meted out to the Richmond Negro, my companion and I did visit Justice Crutchfield's court, the room in the basement of the city hall was crowded, all the benches were occupied and many persons, white and black, were standing up, among the members of the audience for the performance is more like a vaudeville show with the judge's headliner than like a serious tribunal I noticed several actors and actresses from a company which was playing in Richmond at the time these doubtless drawn to the place by the fact that Walter C. Kelly, billed in vaudeville as the Virginia judge, is commonly reported to have taken Judge Crutchfield as a model for his exceedingly amusing monologue. Mr. Kelly himself has, however, told me that his inspiration came from hearing the late Judge J.D.G. Brown, of Newport News, hold court, at the back of the room, in what appeared to be a sort of steel cage, were assembled the prisoners, all of them, on this occasion, Negroes, while at the head of the chamber behind the usual police court bulwark, sat the judge a white-haired, hook-nosed man of more than seventy, peering over the top of his eyeglasses with a look of shrewd, merciless divination, William Taylor calls a court officer, a negro is brought from the cage to the bar of justice, he is a sad spectacle, his face adorned with a long strip of surgeon's plaster, the judge looks at him over his glasses, the hearing proceeds as follows, court officer to prisoner get over there, prisoner obeys, judge crudchfield Sunday drunk five dollars, it is over, the next prisoner is already on his way to the bar, he is a short, wide negro, very black and tattered, a large black negress, evidently his consort, arises as witness against him. The case goes as follows, Judge C.R.U.D.C.H.F.I.L.D. drunk, the wife looking contemptuously at her spouse drunk, yes, judge, drunk, always drunk, the prisoner meekly I ain't been drunk, judge, the judge yes, you have, I can see you've got your sign up this morning, looking toward cage at back of room, make them niggers stop talking back there, to the wife. What did he do, Mandy? The wife angrily judge. He come bustin' in and he come so fast he untook the do off the hinges. Then he begins the judge to the prisoner. Sarcastically you wasn't drunk, eh? The prisoner weakly I might have had a drink o too. The judge severely was you drunk? The prisoner numbersha. Judge, I wasn't drunk. I don't think no man's drunk as long as he can navigate. Judge, I don't the judge oh. Yes, he can be. He can't navigate and navigate mighty mean. Ten dollars. At this point an officer speaks in a low tone to the judge, evidently interceding for the prisoner. The judge loudly no. That fine's very small. If it ain't worth ten dollars to get drunk, 
it ain't worth nothing at all. Next case. While the next prisoner is being brought up, the judge entertains his audience with one of the humorous monologues for which he is famous, and which, together with the summary, justice, he mets out, keeps ripples of laughter running through the room, I'm going to get drunk myself, someday, and see what it does to me, laughter, maybe I'll take a little cocaine, too, a negro voice from back of room, deep bass, and very fervent oh, no no no, don't do that, judge, more laughter, the judge wears that prisoner, if he was a baptist, he wouldn't be so slow, the prisoner, the yellow negro, is brought to the bar, his trousers are mended with a large safety pin and his other equipment is to match, the judge inspecting the prisoner sharply you ain't a Richmond nigger, I can tell that to a look at you, the prisoner numbersha, judge, that's right, the judge where you from, you're from North Carolina, ain't you, the prisoner yes, sha, judge, the judge six months, a great laugh rises from the courtroom at this. On inquiry we learn that the joke depends upon the judge's well-known aversion for Negroes from North Carolina. Only recently I had heard Walter C. Kelly as the Virginia judge, save for a certain general side which Mr. Kelly indicates, and of which I saw no signs in Judge Crutchfield. I should say that, even though Judge Crutchfield is not his model, the suggestion of him is strongly there. Two of Mr. Kelly's cases are particularly reminiscent of the Richmond Police Court. One is as follows, the judge first case Sadie Anderson, the prisoner Yasser, that's me, the judge 30 days in jail, that's me, next case, the other, the judge what's your name, the prisoner Sam Williams, the judge how old are you, Sam, the prisoner just 24, the judge you'll be just 25 when you get out, next case. Chapter XXIV Norfolk and its neighborhood just as New York looks newer than Boston, but is actually older. Norfolk looks newer than Richmond. Business and population grow in Richmond, but you do not feel them growing as you do in Norfolk. You feel that Richmond businessmen already have money, whereas in Norfolk there is less old wealth and a great deal more scrambling for new dollars. Also you feel that law and order count for more in Richmond than in Norfolk and that the strict prohibition law which not long ago became effective in Virginia will be more easily enforced in the capital than in the seaport. Norfolk, in short, likes the things New York likes. It likes tall office buildings, and it dotes on the signs of commercial activity by day and social activity by night. Furthermore, from the tops of some of the high buildings the place actually looks like a miniature New York, the Elizabeth River masquerading as the East River, Portsmouth, with its navy yard pretending to be Brooklyn, while some old-time New York ferryboats, running between the two cities, assist in completing the illusion, in the neighboring city of Newport News, Norfolk has its equivalent for Jersey City and Hoboken, while Willoughby Spit protrudes into Hampton Roads like Sandy Hook reduced to miniature, the principal shopping streets of Norfolk and Richmond are as unlike as possible, Broad Street, Richmond, is very wide, and is never overcrowded, whereas Grandy Street, Norfolk advertised by local enthusiasts as the livest street in Virginia, and appropriately spanned, at close intervals, by arches of incandescent lights, is none too wide for the traffic it carries, with the result that, during the afternoon and evening, it is truly very much alive. To look upon it at the crowded hours is to get a suggestion of a much larger city than Norfolk actually is a suggestion which is in part accounted for by the fact that Norfolk's spending population drawn from surrounding towns and cities, is much greater than the number of its inhabitants. 
Norfolk's extraordinary growth in the last two or three decades may be traced to several causes, to the fertility of the soil of the surrounding region, which, intensively cultivated, produces rich market garden crops, making Norfolk a great shipping point for truck to the development of the trade in peanuts, which are grown in large quantities in this corner of Virginia, to a great trade in oysters and other seafood, and to the continually increasing importance of the Norfolk Navy Yard. In connection with the Navy Norfolk has always figured prominently, Hampton Roads having been a favorite naval rendezvous since the early days of the American fleet. Now, however, it is announced that the cry of our Navy for a real naval base something we have never had, though all other important navies had them, Britain alone having three has been heard in Washington, and that Norfolk has been selected as the site for a base. This is an important event not only for the Virginia seaport, but for the United States. Farmers who think they are in a poor business will do well to investigate Norfolk's recent history. The trucking industry of Norfolk is said to amount in the aggregate to 12 or 14 million dollars annually, and many fortunes have been made from it. The pioneer trucker of the region was Mr. Richard Cox. A good many years ago Mr. Cox employed a German boy, a blacksmith by trade, named Henry Kern. Kern finally branched out for himself, when, in 1915, he died. His real estate holdings in Norfolk and Portsmouth were valued at $2 million, all of which had been made from garden truck. He was but one of a considerable class of wealthy men whose fortunes had sprung from the same source. Many of the truck farms had access to the water. The farmers bring their produce to the city in their own boats, giving the port a picturesque note. At Norfolk it is transferred to steamers which carry it to New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Providence, Baltimore and Washington. Lately a considerable amount of truck has been shipped west by rail, as well. Hundreds of acres of ground in the vicinity of the city are under glass and large crops of winter vegetables are raised. Kale and spinach are being grown and harvested throughout the cold months. Strawberries, potatoes, beans, peas, cucumbers, cabbage, lettuce and other vegetables follow through the spring and summer, running on into the fall. When the corn crop becomes important, corn is raised chiefly by the peanut farmer whose peanuts grow between his corn rows, while the banks are carrying the peanut farmers, pending their fall harvest. The activities of the truckers are at their height, so that the money loaned to one class of agriculturist is replaced by the deposits of the other class, and by the same token. Of course, the peanut farmers are depositing money in the banks when the truckers want to borrow. This situation, one judges, is not found objectionable by Norfolk and Portsmouth bankers. And I have been told that, as a corollary, these banks have never been.